And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, team. Before I bring the message, I just want to thank Rand for allowing us to use this from where he came and now the heading up the pastoral care at Church of the Apostles. Thank God for being trophy of grace. Will you stand up? Also, with us today, some very special guests from Papua New Guinea. Now, most of us in America don't know where that is, but lived in Australia. These were our neighbors to the north. Uh, station managers or radio stations that carry leading the way in Papua New Guinea. I want you to stand up and let the apostles welcome you. Stand up. Thank you so much. The man who's hosting them was the very first executive director of Leading the Way. It's the first full-time position we've ever had at Leading the Way with a part-time secretary. Then it was a full-time secretary. And from there, God did what he only could do. Joe Emmett, I thank you. Please stand. Mrs. Emmett, thank you for your... Thank you for bringing the friends, and thank you for investing those seeds of faith in those early days. Here we are, seeing what God is doing. Thank you so much. As many of you know, I had many wonderful mentors through my life growing up and through my ministry. One of them was John Stott, and John Stott is an English uh, pastor, uh, world-renowned, and I've known him. Before he died uh, for over 40 years, one of the things that he said to me, he said many things that I still uh, remember and have learned greatly from him. One of the things he told me several times, it was a saying that King George V, who is the grandfather of the current Queen Elizabeth, um, something he used to say to his sons my boys, remember who you are. My boys, remember who you are. To a lesser degree, my family was known in the city in which I grew up as God-fearing, God-loving, loved the Lord Jesus, impeccable reputation, And so can you imagine, in my rebellious years, how often I was told, do not tarnish the family name, because I was hell-bent on tarnishing it. But I can tell you, in a far far, far, far more important truth that we, the believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, must remind ourselves not only daily but moment by moment of who we are. 
Can I get an amen? We have been learning throughout the series of messages from Romans that our salvation is a gift from God, that our justification is a gift of God, our redemption is God's indescribable gift to every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, our adoption into the royal family of God is undeserved and unmerited. But once we are adopted, once we have uh, taken on this new family name, once we have been robed with the robe of righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, once we are identified as members of the royal family of King Jesus, once we are called princes and princesses. Once we've done that, we need to constantly remind ourselves on a moment-by-moment -moment basis of who we are, that we need to constantly remind ourselves how to live as royals. Uh, we need to know how to behave as royals. We need to understand how our lives must reflect that new family name. We need to learn how to bring honor and not dishonor to the king who graciously adopted us as sons and daughters. Please listen to me. This living of the new identity in Christ is a process. I want to repeat this. This living with new identity as members of the royal family of King Jesus is a process. It is not an experience, and it is not once and for all. It is a process, and it is a process that will never end until the day we see Jesus face to face. But more of that process, it must not be stand, come to a standstill. It has to constantly move upward. It must constantly move forward every single day. And beloved, this process requires our deepest commitment and our full attention. While we have nothing to do to deserve our salvation, to deserve the grace of God, other than stretching out our hands and receiving grace, graceful, graciously and thankfully, the process of our daily growing into Christ requires the commitment of the will and the mind and effort, dedication, and all intentionalities. When the king graciously and gratuitously, gratuitously adopted you, and you could not do anything to get it. The only thing is required is for us to bow the knee and say thank you, to bow the knee and do thank you. Most of you said, well, I know how to say thank you. How do I do thank you? Well, I'm glad you asked because I want to tell you. It is Romans chapter 6. Please turn to it with me where the Apostle Paul tells us how to do thank you. 
If you haven't turned already to Romans 6, please do so now. Follow it with me. But I want to tell you at the outset, I want, I want to be sure that no one misunderstands what I'm saying, and I'm only saying what the Word of God is saying. <laughs> what I am not saying, and what the Word of God is not saying, that after you receive the gift of salvation, God says, okay, buddy, now you're on your own. That's not what the Scripture is saying. Or now that you're saved, you, are, you can either sink or swim. It's up to you. Or now that I have given you salvation, it is totally up to you to live in obedience. Now, beloved, listen to me. For if anyone thinks that he or she can give, can live a godly life on their own strength, you're in a lot of trouble. If you think that you can live obedient life to Christ by your own wit and by own grit, you're in deep, deep trouble. And so I want you to listen carefully. Even though we do have an important part to play in our sanctification, even though we are responsible for our walk with Christ, even though we are commanded to obey the Lord, and yet we cannot grow more into Christ-likeness without a total dependence on the power of Christ. Look with me, please, at verse 1, Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we live or shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Absolutely not. That's really the literal translation. Absolutely not. Now, for the sake of sounding redundant, and, and, and I tell you, one of my weaknesses as, as a young preacher is that I don't like repetition. But I remember again one of my mentors who said, do not stop repeating things because you may not like it, but People don't get it the first time, so you keep on repeating it. And so, for the sake of sounding, for sake of redundance, uh, and I thank you for your patience with me, because I will never stop consistently warning you that this type of thinking is among and practiced by so many so-called evangelicals who take the grace of God and turn it into license. And it's an only increase all the time. Uh, just recently, I was reading this worldwide preacher on television by the name of Joseph Prince from Singapore. He said, there is no judgment. God is not going to judge anybody because Christ took all of the judgment on himself on the cross. And he's followed by so many. Others say, in effect, whoopee, if sin brings more grace, let's bring sin into the church. And they've done it. Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, says in verse 4 in his letter, for certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of God into license for immorality and deny Christ Jesus, our only sovereign and Lord. Beloved, there is a world of difference. Listen to me. There is a world of difference between occasionally failing and occasionally falling in sin and deliberately and willfully and intentionally 
living in sin as an established pattern and then rationalize it or explain it. Uh, that deliberate, willful, intentional living in sin and then being rationalized is impossible. Listen to me. It is impossible for the believer. Why? Two reasons, and they come straight from this chapter, Romans chapter 6. In verses 1 to 14, it said the first reason is that those who have been liberated from the grasp of sin do not long to go back to that slavery. And secondly, verses 15 to 23, he says, those who are liberated believers, they joyfully and thankfully and delightfully surrender to the newfound master, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of righteousness. Let's look at these very quickly. First reason, we need to understand what Paul is not saying. Listen to this. You need to understand what he's not saying because a lot of people get messed up. I want to tell you what he's not saying. Paul is not saying that we are incapable of sin. That is not what he's saying. In case you have any doubt, I can tell you I am very capable. I'm your pastor, and I'm confessing to you I am very capable. Most of you would testify to that fact. And I'm going to say more about that in the next message when we get to chapter 7. I'm going to show you how capable we are. So that's not what he's saying. Don't fall in that trap. For John tells us in chapter 1, verse 8, for if we claim that we are without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we what? Okay. If we what? God bless you. Oh, yes. <laughs> We're more than capable of sinning. But the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is no longer under the compulsion and the terror of sin. Not anymore. The believer no longer dutifully obey sin like they used to before Christ. The believer is no longer helpless to say no to sin. No in a million no's because we are saved. Uh, the Holy Spirit that moment came into our lives and sealed the believer, and He gave us a new power to be able to say no to sin. I want to help you visualize. I'm a visual person. I wish I could have artistic ability that I could paint the picture here for you. But I want you to imagine in your mind's eyes uh, two fields next to each other. And they're separated by a fence. Just think about it. Two fields. One field is owned by Satan. And right next to that, a field is owned by the Lord Jesus Christ. The two fields as I said, separated by a fence. Before you were saved, before I was saved, we worked and lived in Satan's field, the field that he owns. <laughs> we were totally under his control. He would say, do this, and we say, yes, sir. Do that, and we say, yes, sir. We were subject to his jurisdiction. We were bound by his laws. We were ruled by his power. We were slaves to his dictates. Oh, he always promises you plenty, but he pays you with pain and suffering and guilt and shame. 
Listen to me. There are many, and there may be some here today. There's somebody watching around the world right now who's still working in Satan's field, and they're curious about Christianity, curious about Christ. Get out of that field and come to Christ's field right now in Jesus' name. But when you're saved, you moved fields. (laughs) You went from Satan's field, you went next door to Christ's field. Your new master. is so loving. He's so kind. He's so gracious. Your new master has your best interest at heart. And you are totally loved by this wonderful new master. But here's what happens. The former slave master, Satan, is forever looking over the fence and beckoning you. Hello. You know, you never got that? I get invitations from him every single moment of every day. Come over. Come back. He's forever cajoling you to return. He's forever tricking you into coming back. He's forever saying, this time, I'm going to pay you good. (laughs) But the genuine believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, who have moved from Satan's field into Jesus' field, they know that from time to time they may forget all of the pain and the shame and the guilt and the agony of the former slave master. They may forget the misery and the tears that he brought about in our lives. They forget the agony that was caused by that former master. And so they occasionally might jump the fence. Oh, occasionally they might fall for his deception. But I want you to remember, remember this. Satan has no power to keep you there. Only a power to entice you. Uh, the alert believer, of course, is going to say to him, Satan, buzz off. That's a big theological word. You need to learn it. It will help you. <laughs> I have nothing to say to you. Get out of here. The Bible said in James chapter 4, verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Can you say it together? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Call upon the name of new master. And say to him, help, and he will come to your aid immediately. I know this may sound like an oversimplification to some of you, but you get the point. The gospel is simple. We complicate it, but the gospel is very simple. In fact, Paul is telling us that the true believer never goes back and stays back. Did you get that? The true believer never goes back and stays back. Why? (laughs) Because he knows better. Look with me at those verses in verse 3. Don't you know? In verse 6, for we know. In verse 9, we know. What do we know? We know that now we are in Jesus' field, not in Satan's field. He has no jurisdiction over us. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget that. He might bark, but he can't bite you. You've been immunized. 
by the blood of Jesus. Don't you know? Don't you know? Galatians 3.27 says, for we are, for, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have closed yourselves with Christ. <laughs> now that you have identified yourself with Christ, because that's really what baptism means, the outward thing is water, and whether you dip or you dunk or you do whatever you do, it doesn't matter. It is the circumcision of the heart he's been talking about all this time. It is your identifying with Christ. That's the baptism. That's the Holy Spirit baptism. You are, you are identified with Christ. The moment you identify with Christ, you cannot possibly identify with sin and with Christ at the same time, because it's that sin that took Christ to that cross and held him there. And don't flirt with the enemy. Remember who you are. Say it with me. Remember you must not become a traitor to the cause of Christ. Verse 5, if you have been united with him like this in his death, you will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. Praise God. Praise God. What does that mean? It means that when you accept the gift of faith and salvation in some spiritual way, in some indescribable way, in, come, in some unimaginable way, you have been transplanted 2,000 years in history, and there on the cross you died with Christ, but then you also rose with Him from the grave on that first Easter Sunday morning. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Beloved, listen to me. It is self-contradiction for a believer who has died to sin continuously live in sin. Uh, one would have to use some very perverted logic <laughs> to argue that deliberately living in sin can somehow bring you more of God's grace. It's a perverted logic, and yet there's so many young preachers are preaching this stuff. Listen to me. I am painfully aware, painfully painfully, painfully aware of the fact that when a believer stops his time with Christ on a daily basis, intimacy with Him and with His Word in fellowshipping with Him, I'm aware of that. When that stops, you're opening yourself up to all sorts of trouble. I am painfully aware that when some, some people get so worn out of Satan's temptation, beckoning to come to his field, I am painfully aware that some just give up and they go to the other side. But what we all must learn <laughs> is that when that happens, you need to immediately run back and come back to Christ's field. Don't hang out. Young people love to hang out. Don't hang out in Satan's field. Don't wait until you feel again the pain of the scourging on your back. Ah, uh, but here's the worst thing that any believer can do. Listen to me, and some do. The worst thing you could do is you put one foot in Satan's field and the other foot in Christ's field. You will be run over, and it doesn't look pretty. Ask me. I know. It is not only vitally important that you stay in Jesus' field, 
but don't leave a forwarding address. <laughs> Did you get this? Don't leave a forwarding address. In fact, many years ago, I read this story, whether it's true or not, I don't know, about this man who went to his counselor, and he was totally stressed out. He said, I'm so stressed out. I'm under stress. And he said, well, what caused you stress? He said, well, I've been getting some hate mail. He said, do you know where it's coming from? He said, no. Did you go to the police? He said, well, they can't help me. Um, He said, well, have you tried moving houses? Oh, yes, I moved houses several times. Nothing happened. Keeps Hate mail just keeps on coming. Well, maybe you should try moving house further away and see what happens. Six months later, he comes back to the council. He said, I'm under stress. The hate mail never stopped. I'm totally stressed out. Did you move like we talked about? Yes, I did. I moved to another city. And the mail's still coming. And the hate mail keeps coming. And I'm utterly stressed. The perplexed counselor said, well, why don't you try moving one more time? One more time. Six months later, he came back. Same old story. Now it's getting worse. And even I moved to a different state, I still get all that hate mail. Well, time went on, and the counselor had not seen the man for a while. And in his mind, he said, well, things maybe got better, and he must be doing okay until he ran into him in the local store. And the counselor was so surprised to find this man smiling, happy, uh, no outward stress at all. So the counselor asked him, what happened? The man said, I never felt better in my life. The hate mail stopped. He said, where did you move to? He said, I actually moved two doors down from my original house. He said, well, how come? How what solved the problem? The man simply said, I stopped giving my forwarding address. Don't give Satan your forwarding address. Beloved, listen to me. There are Christians who are moving from church to church. There are Christians who are moving from one Bible study to another. There are Christians who are moving from counselor to counselor, looking for panacea somewhere, when all they need to do is stop leaving a forwarding address to Satan. And Paul is saying that when you move out of Satan's field into Jesus' field, into his territory, you better not leave a forwarding address. Why? Because when Christ died on the cross, he paid the penalty of sin. He took that penalty on his holy body, and he gave you the power to overcome every time you seek his help and strength. For on the cross, I'm getting ready to shout, (laughs) on the cross, Jesus did not only meet the legal demands for those who trust in him, but his death defrauded sin of its power on the believer. His death forever loosened the clutches of sin for those who are his. You don't want to say amen? Experience that power. I don't know about you, but on Tuesdays I have a one-man revival (laughs) with the Word of God. Look at verses 10 and 11, Romans chapter 6. 
The death he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives, he lived for, to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 12, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its evil desires. Verse 13. Verse 13 is an amazing… I, I reflected on this for a long time. I honestly could preach an entire sermon on verse 13. I know we don't have that kind of attention span these days, but I'm telling you, there is an amazing imagery in verse 13. Underline it in your Bible. I'm going to tell you about that imagery, what it means to me. It has really blessed me out of my socks many years ago, but it's still to this day. I wish I had the time that I can elaborate on it. The picture in verse 13 is that of a deposed dictator. Think with me. A deposed dictator, which is sin. Sin is a merciless dictator. He's deposed. <laughs> Don't be intimidated by sin anymore because it's a deposed dictator. Now, many of you know that the first 19 years of my life, I lived under the most brutal dictatorship. People would disappear overnight. We don't know what happened to them for no reason at all, and we cannot find out what happened to them. There were so many informants for the government. They were everywhere. We did not know. We, we, they were in the schools. They were in the sports uh, arena. They were in public life everywhere, like a Gestapo type, but they were playing clothes, informant. Whenever we talked about, even in our homes, whenever we talked about the government, we, we, we kind of brought our voices so low, almost into a whisper. We used to say, walls have ears. Walls have ears. We were terrified of the dictator. Fast forward in the late 60s when I went to Australia, my very first friend is a wonderful young man by the name of Terry Conley. Terry had a flaming red beard, and we were in a restaurant back there. They called them Milk Bar. <laughs> we were having a cup of coffee, and we were talking, and I started talking about the Egyptian government, and I looked around, and I lowered my voice to a whisper, and he looked at me with utter surprise, and he said, Michael, you're no longer in Egypt. You're no longer in Egypt. I, even though I've been out for several months, I thought I was still under that rule of that dictatorship. Beloved, you are not under the dictatorship of sin and Satan anymore. From that moment, the Lord taught me some incredible spiritual lessons. That in the Lord Jesus Christ, sin has lost its grasp, unless I allow it to. Sin is a deposed dictator that no longer has power over the believer. And you can defeat sin. And that's my second point from this chapter, this great chapter. 
You can defeat sin by joyfully surrendering to your new, new master, Jesus. This loving, benevolent, generous, gracious Lord. Look at verse 15 all the way to 23. And in order to understand this particular passage, you have to understand the context where the Romans have lived. Of course, we are blessed by the Word of God, but don't ever forget that when the writers were writing these epistles particularly, they were writing into certain groups of people, and there are certain cultural contexts, a certain legal and, and surrounding things that we need to understand in order to get the full benefit and the full knowledge of what it means. Because way before the Apostle Paul was born, way before he was born, the Roman Senate legislated a law. And the law goes something like this. If a freeborn man is born free, he could not be enslaved. Like all laws, people found loopholes. Hello, lawyers. Hello. There's nothing wrong with that. That's okay. <laughs> but that law basically was began to be systematically abused by people. Let me explain to you what, what I mean. He's a freeborn person, run out of money, needs some money. So they found a rich guy. So what they do, they come and said, uh, you can buy me as a slave and I can serve you for the rest of my life. Really? Yeah, but you're freeborn. Yeah, but the, I'm, I'm personally allowing you to buy me as a slave. So he gives him money. When he takes the money and uses the money, then he brings a group of friends who would come to the owner and say, uh-uh, you're breaking the law. This man is born free. And the law said you can never enslave somebody who's born free. So what the guy does, he loses the money and loses the slave. <laughs> Especially in a culture, in an empire that was, the economy was built. The whole economy was built on slavery. So you can imagine the havoc that this was causing to, the, uh, to this empire. So shortly before the birth of the Apostle Paul, the Roman Senate saw the problem and they tried to solve it. God bless our legislators. They do their best. But they at the time announced and said, whoever sells himself, even though he may be a free person, but if you sell yourself voluntarily into slavery, you stay in slavery. I mean, they just, because it was destroying the country. Bottom line, once you sell yourself into slavery, you stay a slave forever. And that deterred a lot of those crooks. And so, when Paul said to the Romans here in chapter 6, verse 16 particularly, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, he was saying that you cannot live as both in the freedom of Christ and in the bondage to sin, all at the same time, you can't do it. Something's got to give. Beloved, every human being on the face of the earth, every human being in the globe, it doesn't matter what label they have, or be a Buddhist or a Muslim, it doesn't matter. Uh, every human being on the face of the earth either have Satan for their master or Jesus for their master. Did you get that? 
That's basically the two choices. There's no third. Either enslavement to sin and Satan or to the righteousness of Jesus. No wonder Jesus said in 6.24 of Matthew, no one, no one can serve two masters. I know, I know because I know you, (laughs) that no one here would disagree with me that those days of slavery were horrible days, and thank God they're gone. But I want to tell you that the spiritual slavery is live and well. The issue is this. Which master will you choose to serve? Which master will you choose to serve? Now, this is testimony time, just for a minute. It was sometime after I was saved, and I must confess, I've said this to you before, you know, I just had so many false teaching and and, and stuff that were really not biblical and, and were just taught, and, and I saw this and I accepted this. I thought that was truth, and it wasn't. I never searched the Scripture for myself. And, but anyway, I'm not blaming anybody. I'm blaming me. But it was sometime after I was saved that I came at that moment of realization and understanding the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And I remember that moment just like the moment of my salvation when I gladly, joyfully, and happily declared myself to be Jesus' slave forever. Unashamedly. Unashamedly. And also this kind of language is freaking some of you. I can see it. It's freaking you out. I know that. I know that in this 21st century. This language is freaking some of you out. Listen to me. You know, and I know most of you know, if a visitor here, you might not know, but you know that I have never been, nor will I ever be, politically correct. Right? Thank you. It's too late now. It's too late. Too old for that. But I can tell you that to the best of my ability, I have sought to always be biblically correct. So please listen to me. Every one of us is surrendered to a master. Every one of us. Anyone to the sound of my voice, whom you choose to serve. Verses 21 and 22, Paul contrasts two types of slaveries. And he asks, which one do you honestly, honestly, if, as you evaluate the benefits of each one of those two, slavery to Satan or slavery to Christ, which one you choose? Verse 21, slavery to sin produces unbearable guilt here and now and eternal separation from God forever. Ah, oh, but verse 22, slavery to the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ gives you freedom from guilt freedom from sin, here and now, and guarantees you eternal life with Christ forever. Verse 23, Paul draws the ultimate contrast between the two slaveries. That is the ultimate. 
If I lost you, may I plead with you, come back. Come back. I'm coming toward the end, so come back. I want you to get this, please. He contrasts the wages of sin is death. (laughs) But the gift, you got that? The wages, the gift. Say it with me. See the contrast? The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Sin, my beloved friends, pays wages. Did you get that? From sin, you get paid what you deserve. You get paid judgment. But God gives you a free gift. (laughs) He gives you what you don't deserve. I think we've got a lot of Presbyterians today. (laughs) I thought you'd be shouting. Unless you haven't got that gift. (laughs) God's free gift is you get what you don't deserve, what you could never earn. Again, don't miss this. Don't miss it. I'm getting ready to close, so don't miss what I'm going to say. Wages is contrasted with a gift. Wages, gift. Wages refers to the rations that were given to soldiers. Sometimes they'll give them salt. And they say, that's what you hear some people say, it's not worth the salt. That's because they paid them with salt. (laughs) Sometimes they gave them tiny little pennies. Wages refers to the very meager pocket money that a slave would receive from his master. But the gift, the charismata, can you say it with me? The charismata indicates an abundance of blessings, blessings beyond your ability to even comprehend or fully understand. The Romans, who were reading this letter initially, understood the difference between the wages and the gift. And I have no doubt they all became Pentecostals and began to shout when they read this. I am absolutely convinced. Wages versus a gift. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. This is not comparison. They knew all about the wages because millions and millions and millions of slaves in Rome were receiving these meager wages As I told you, the economy of the entire empire was built on slavery. And Paul uses this to remind every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, while by birth we've inherited Adam's slavery to sin, but by grace we've been set free. Bondage to sin yields shame and guilt and ultimate judgment, but the bondage to Christ, on the other hand, yields precious fruits of growing in grace. Hear me right, please. I'm about to finish. One of the greatest gifts that you can give yourself. Listen to me. One of the greatest you give yourself. Nobody has to give it. You can give it to yourself every single day. In fact, any moment, any time, you can give yourself this gift. See, when you are making an important decision, when you are wrestling with temptation, when you are angry with yourself or angry with others, remind yourself of God's gift, not wages. God's gift, not wages. 
Remember what I said earlier in the very beginning of the message about King George V? He used to tell his boys, remember who you are. Say it with me. Well, one did and became a king, the father of Queen Elizabeth, and the other did not, and for the rest of his life endured rejection, misery, alienation for the rest of his life. Oh, how much more important it is in the spiritual realm. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. Remember you are a member of the royal family of King Jesus. Remember you belong to the family of God. Remember your family's reputation. Remember your family's good name. Remember that you have the very blood of Christ going through your veins because now you belong to the royal family, the royal family of God. Amen. Amen. And amen. And amen. Please stand to your feet. Stand to your feet. There are no Gestapo's here. I don't like that life, and it doesn't happen in the spiritual realm, so I know that every heart that is here, every person who's standing here, I hope that you're going to wait just a few more minutes, and I know just five minutes is not going to make any difference. It could make the difference in your eternity and your walk with Christ. If you're a person who would say, Lord Jesus, I'm sorry. I have forgotten who I am. I have known you before, but I wandered off, and I'm sorry to get back into Satan's field. Now I want to come back. I want you to raise your hands. Every eye is closed. Every head is bowed. Just raise your hand high up in the air, and I'm going to pray with you. And say, Lord Jesus, I want to come back. Thank you. I can see in the balcony. Yes, thank you. It's between you and Christ. It's nobody else. It's, it's why it's intimate. Raise your hand. Say, Lord Jesus, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for running away and staying away, and I, I'm sorry for rationalizing my sin. I come to you in the name of Jesus. Father God, you are the examiner of every heart. To you, all hearts are open, and from you, no secrets are hid. And so I pray in the name of Jesus that you cleanse every heart, that you honor every hand that was lifted up. Lord Jesus, that you give them your strength. We know, Lord, we cannot live for you without you. Without you, we can't even please you, Lord God. We cannot obey you without your strength. We say we're followers of Jesus, but God, you know we cannot follow you even for one inch without your power, without your strength. Would you come upon us today and meet us where we are, and Father, I pray that every single person as we walk out of here, that anybody will meet us will know we have been with Jesus. In his name I pray. Give God praise. Amen and amen and amen. 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 Thank you, Jeremy.